What you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia, environmental radio show on Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP in Philadelphia, and on gtownradio.com. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Planet Philadelphia. I'm Kay Wood, the host of the show. Linda Rosenwein, our assistant producer reporter, is here with me. Today, we're on a call with Catherine Stone, and she's been doing some interesting research. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for talking with us. Hi, Kay and Linda. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So before we get into your research, could you just tell people a little bit about yourself and your work? Sure. Yes. So I am here on the east coast of Canada in Nova Scotia, and I did an undergrad in health promotion, which really sparked all of my interest in health equity. And it actually led me to do an internship with the Public Health Agency of Canada. So Uh, federal agency looking at health in Canada. And I was given the topic one day uh, by my supervisor, Donna Malone, (laughs) uh, climate change and mental health. And I was like, what is this? I've never heard of this. This is so interesting. I started reading a lot of papers about it and I decided to go and do a master's in health promotion to study the topic further. And what I found is that there was a lot of research on climate change and mental health it's a, and a new emerging field that's and then there's information and research on climate change and women but there wasn't much on women's mental health in the changing climate so that's where i found my focus and that's what i did my master's research on um and today i'm a research coordinator and looking to hopefully keep studying these these climate impacts by way of a PhD soon, but knock on wood. <laughs> but currently you're at Dalhousie, right? I am, yes, as a research okay. coordinator with the School of Nursing. Right. Okay. What were your findings on the mental health impacts of climate change on women? So I have kind of two pieces of work on this issue. One is published, which is how you found me, and that is a review of the current literature on this topic. So a lot of the research to date has been um, produced after a wildfire or a flood or those acute disasters that we can't specifically uh, attribute to climate change, but we can say for certain that with climate change, we're getting those more intense and more frequent extreme weather events. So I found that there were five themes that came out of current literature, and those were negative mental health outcomes, broad emotional difficulties that women were having after these extreme weather events. So fears and anxieties and PTSD after wildfires, depression, um, really feeling anxious about health and safety of themselves, of their children, and of their communities. So that was one theme. And the next is gender-based violence. So there were actually several publications that talked about um, how the incidence of gender-based violence increases post-disaster. There's also information that suggests 
that gender-based violence increases also during times of water scarcity, so a drought where women are going further and to more remote locations to get water or resources. Um, But for the most part, it was in the post-disaster world. Um, So that was the second theme. And the third was burden of care and responsibility. So that's where women and girls face a disproportionate burden of care and responsibility. Again, mostly after extreme weather events. And this was leading to anxiety, um, stress, depression, and those broader negative mental health outcomes. Um, The fourth theme was connection to land, culture, and tradition. Um, This theme was talking about how uh, women find it particularly challenging to watch their landscapes, cultures, and traditions change, and in some cases disappear with the changing climate. And the last theme is really broad, but I think the most important, and that's the importance of intersectionality. So all the studies that I looked at in this review discussed how gender, age, race, socioeconomic position, and geography all determine how people are impacted by climate change. So it's really reductionist and kind of too simple to just talk about gender when there are so many other factors at play. So women across the world are going to have really different experiences based on all of those things that can intersect to really shape someone's experience with climate change. Um, So you talked about the research focusing on disasters. What about long-term weather changes? What can you say about that? Yeah, that's a great question. And It's honestly a gap in the literature, in my opinion, right now. We do focus a lot on extreme weather events, and I think that's for a number of reasons. Um, One being that it might be easier to get funding after a wildfire and say, okay, this happened. It was crazy. We need to research it. And people go, yeah, of course, here's some funding. Whereas the chronic, more longer lasting changes are more difficult. Uh, they're, they're not in the headlines. That's certainly a gap in the literature. I wish I could speak more on it. Uh, there's been a recent CDC study saying that teenage girls in this country are more in distress than they've been in the past. And how does that fit in with the research and your findings? Mm-hmm. It certainly fits in with Uh, or certainly relates, I should say, to my master's findings. I conducted my research in Canada, so there could be a bit of a difference there. But I read in that study um, from the CDC that something that really stood out to me from it was uh, the term hopelessness, which they discussed in several really distressing statistics about young girls and this was actually a theme from my master's research. So I talked to young women here in Eastern Canada um, about mental health and climate change and their experiences. And hopelessness was actually a big theme. The word kept repeating itself in, in the transcripts and it was directly related to climate change in this case, because that was the context of the interviews. But um, a lot of it was to do with 
not knowing what was going to happen, not knowing what they could do, feeling helpless about the changing climate, hearing really, really scary news headlines and things to do with experiences that they weren't necessarily experiencing, like uh, wildfires out west. But hearing the experiences of other people made them feel helpless. Yeah, I did want to ask in your literature review what you found, if anything, about the mental health of men and boys and climate change. And of course, their mental health also affects women and girls. Mm, Totally. So the big problem with the mental health and climate change research is that people are not making specific gender results. So there's a lack of a sex and gender-based analysis in a lot of this research. What I can say is that there has been research on um, the mental health of boys and men who are farmers, um, particularly in India and Australia, and how their mental health is really suffering because of the changing landscape and their ability to grow crops. I wanted to ask if there's any positive effects. Are there positive effects of climate change at all? An interesting piece of work that needs to be really further studied is this idea of post-traumatic growth. So um, Dr. Katie Hayes talks about this, where communities are able to rebuild, salvage, come together, um, and work together after a flood or some other type of climate disaster. And it can actually give people a sense of purpose and a sense of belonging and togetherness. So to me, that is something that's positive. Anytime humans come together to solve an issue for the common good, I think we need to recognize the the positive mental health outcomes of that. I was wondering if you have thoughts on the needs of women and girls in adapting to climate disruption. Are there solutions? Yes, I actually have quite a few recommendations from my master's thesis that I'd love to share with y'all. And so the first kind of relates to the hopelessness piece that we were talking about before. We definitely need more media and news that demonstrates the strength and the successful action of women and girls to help mitigate those feelings of hopelessness. Um, If we kind of stick to the doom and gloom narrative forever, I'm worried about mental health and, and getting somewhere, right? We need to instill hope and activism in people, um, especially young women and girls, because a big part of why they chose women and girls to focus on is their strength and their successful action in this movement. There are tens of people who have dedicated their lives to this issue and it's really empowering and it's, it's really inspiring. And I think if we were to hear more of that, it would help mitigate those feelings of hopelessness. Um, And the other piece is that I think mental health care providers and practitioners need to be up to date on this research. They need to be thinking about climate change in their practice. 
and they should be helping their clients understand what's relevant and important to them. And they should be advocating for climate uh, mitigation and the reduction of greenhouse gases as well, right? We need to get public health to really care about climate change because climate change is, I think the Lancet said, the largest public health threat of this century. So that is a big recommendation for me is that healthcare and public health really need to be on the front lines of climate mitigation and adaptation for sure. That's a very interesting point. We just did an interview with a reporter for Environmental Health News, and she was talking about there is finally, slowly, a movement to take into account climate change, pollution exposure, kind of environmental factors into consideration for prevention and treatment. I don't know if you have comments, but uh, if you do, I'd like to hear them. Yeah, I I do definitely think that we're getting there. I think that's the, the road I see before us. Now we have associations of physicians who are talking about climate change, and we have sort of the sustainable healthcare movement that's coming into play. So I think we're getting there. But of course, I'd love to see more of it because planetary health is human health, right? Linda and I have done a lot of reporting and talking with people, and we have found that community-based solutions often offer a lot of interesting, innovative ways to help with all kinds of problems. And I was wondering if you saw any community-related solutions. Mm -hmm. Definitely one of the biggest things I have seen has been a real community development approach to emergency preparedness and response. So your neighbor can get to you a lot faster in a storm than somebody from the Red Cross. I found that the communities that were really tight-knit and were consistently relying upon one another and being together fared much better in extreme weather events. And of course, there's pieces to that, like how many resources the community has and things like that. But I think a really important thing for communities to do is to prepare and respond to disasters together. Um, I have anecdotal situations that I've heard of from people when I used to work for the government of, okay, you know, we're in a really rural community in northern New Brunswick, which is a province out here on eastern, in the eastern peninsula. And um, people know their neighbors and they know, okay, this lady lives in her house alone. And if Red Cross or somebody from the army comes to the house and asks her to evacuate, she's not going to do it. She's not going to answer the door. We know that we need to go there and we need to let her know what's going on. And, and we need to be a part of her response to this disaster. So that kind of community mindset and emergency preparedness and response is crucial. It seems most of the disaster planning is kind of like an overall planning and it doesn't seem to very often take into account people's individual circumstances and needs and I'm wondering how it serves women and girls if it does mm -hmm. absolutely and actually one of my recommendations from my master's thesis was 
that the health, safety, and security of women should be integrated into all emergency and preparedness strategy plans. So we know from research and actually from my research that gender-based violence can increase during and after extreme weather events. So this information needs to be integrated into all of our planning. Um, we need It needs to be front of mind to protect women in these cases that are going to get more frequent and more intense. Do you have any particular solutions to the preparing for the gender-based violence aspect of it? Mm, I don't really know. All I know is that it's happening. We have people who run women's shelters and crisis shelters, and they all see an increase in people needing a place to go after these extreme weather events. And I think integrating the knowledge into planning is the first step. I think a lot of people uh, would like to sort of rush this issue under the rug, uh, sort of not believe it to be true or um, not want to talk about it because gender-based violence is really taboo, scary topic to discuss. So I think the first step is acknowledging that it happens and it happens worldwide. The research that I've looked at is from India to Australia, to Canada, to the U S and it's very clear. So whatever plan we make, this knowledge has to be integrated into the plan. We've talked about a lot, but are we missing something in particular? I guess um, my degree was in health promotion and health promotion is really focused on those social and structural determinants of health. So I think one of my other important recommendations is that we really continue to work to reduce health disparities. I always say, and this is a quote from Dr. Katie Hayes, is that climate change amplifies existing inequities. So social inequities mean health inequities. And when we throw climate change in the mix, we're we're getting an amplification of those inequities. So the way we mitigate and adapt to climate change has to consider the health and well-being of all people we're not all in the same boat. We're not even all in the same storm sometimes. So um, I think it's really, really important to anytime we talk about climate change to be discussing those uh, structural determinants of health. Uh, Here in the U.S., of course, there's been a lessening of women's ability to have abortions when they need them. And how would you see this as related to climate change and issues for women? Mm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about um, abortion and climate change, but I bet you I can find a link there. Um, with my limited knowledge of abortion care in the U.S., I would say that off the top of my head, travel to get an abortion is probably a really big issue for a lot of people who need abortions or want abortions and traveling during extreme weather might make or break the situation depending on where people need to go to get access to care and depending on how far they need to go and depending on the weather 
uh, we can't underestimate the increase in severity and frequency of extreme weather and changing weather. Sounds like it's just like one more stumbling block in the way of trying to care for oneself. Exactly. To put it in the language of my participants from my study, it's um, another heavy weight. So they talked a lot about um, how climate change might not be the only reason somebody's feeling anxious, but it is certainly another heavy weight on your shoulders to be thinking about, to be worried about. Anything else? One thing I'd like to just mention in the realm of gender-based violence, the uh, National Inquiry into Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls in Canada is a report that came out in 2019 and I think has probably a lot of parallels to the U.S. And actually a part of that report discussed the increases in gender-based violence in Indigenous communities that um, have resource extraction and development next to them, which we can always relate back to climate change. So whether it be pipeline development, um, any sort of fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, we know that there is an increase in violence against Indigenous women and girls in those scenarios. So part of the calls to justice in that report were to do further research and investigation on the relationship between resource extraction and violence against Indigenous women and girls, as well as the need for industry to consider the safety of Indigenous women and girls and people. And yes, to really have this in mind during evaluation of development plans um, and the need to ensure that Indigenous women benefit equally from these types of developments. It seems like a lot of Indigenous lands are where a lot of the extraction is taking place. Mm -hmm. Linda, did you want to go before I responded to that? Well, I just want to say it's not just oil and gas infrastructure. It's um, minerals, Mm -hmm. um, rare minerals and uranium and stuff which have environmental detrimental effects on the population and that as well is affecting those indigenous communities often. And I definitely have seen research saying that women and girls in indigenous communities in our country are at more at risk for violence and other negative outcomes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's so devastating. And the research that I've looked at to date has talked a lot about man camps, which are essentially uh, camps of mostly men workers uh, near or on these industry developing sites um, who come and stay temporarily in the community or really close to it while they're working on the development of whatever project. Um, A lot of them are white and there can be increase in gender-based violence and um, racism, discrimination, uh, and just overall, to me, what it sounds like is, is an unhealthy relationship with the original community there. So, um, and I've heard other things like shift work and substance use can be really detrimental for gender-based violence in those scenarios. So again, I always say we need more research and I'd love to to see the Canadian government and the American government focus in on this issue. 
we had talked about solutions earlier, and it just struck me that possibly something to work towards is to require these companies who are doing extraction to have a public safety element as far as their responsibilities. This is something I've become quite interested in, actually. And what happens a lot of the time, from what I can tell, is that we're supposed to have uh, environmental and health impact assessments in place before industry begins developing in these spaces. But a lot of times, the way that these evaluations are carried out, they're not community-led. So... uh, proponent-led, a government official or a industry official can come in and say, yeah, this development will be fine. We need to do these couple things to make sure that um, this is going to go okay, but overall this is fine. And it's like, well, that's not really for you to determine. (laughs) This is on, for a lot of times, this is on Indigenous land. This is near a community that has been impacted by colonialism and continues to be and uh, has been pushed to the margins already. And you're going to come in and say that this development is fine without leading a community evaluation. So I think shifting the way we do evaluations for industry development is really important. And this actually comes out of a lot of Deanna Lewis's research she started to create Indigenous value-based impact assessments for industries. So that's a, an exciting piece of research. If people want to um, look up Dr. Deanna Lewis, she's done some really incredible work in this area. Could you spell her name so when people Google it, they get it correct? <laughs> yes. Uh, D-I-A-N and Lewis, L-E-W-I-S. Great. Linda, did you have anything else? Yeah, I mean, that sort of leads to the next question. Where else can people find out more? I actually made a list of of resources um, that guided my work and that I found really important in this area. So uh, one thing that I always mention is the All We Can Save anthology, Truth, Courage, and Solutions for the Climate Crisis. It's an anthology um, by Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson and Dr. Catherine Wilkinson. The other important one that I always like to mention is Braiding Sweetgrass by Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's another personal favorite that gives a lot of hope and inspiration. Well, thank you so much. Good luck in your research, and we really need it. So (laughs) thank you so much. Thank you for the work that you guys do. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support.